turn with me to Luke chapter 10. I'll kind of backtrack a little bit just to make the messages walk out. As you're turning there, let me ask you, what is your favorite parable that Jesus told? Do you have a favorite parable? For many, it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's what we will be discussing this morning. And then next Sunday as well, it'll be a two-part message. Margaret Thatcher once said, No one would remember the Good Samaritan if he had only had good intentions. He had money as well. So, it's kind of humorous. But it does challenge us as to why is the parable of the Good Samaritan so well remembered. The fact that it is well remembered and endeared itself to the hearts of millions for the past 2,000 years is just undeniable. It's been coined the greatest story ever told. Think of how deeply ingrained this parable is in American culture and society alone. We have the phrase Good Samaritan in our vocabulary. The judicial system, there's the Good Samaritan law. Healthcare, we have Good Samaritan hospitals. In the newspapers, there's Good Samaritan stories. The largest RV club in America is the Good Sam RV Club. And then Samaritan's Purse, which is a charitable organization. Again, why? Why is this parable so well known and why is it so endeared itself to millions? It's way more than it's good to help folks in need. As we'll see today, it's about excuses self-justification, let myself off the hook, human impossibilities, divine mercy, prejudice, talking love, yet spewing hate, wisdom and witnessing, and two of the greatest questions ever asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life, and who is my neighbor? So over the next two weeks, I want us to dig in and mine the riches of this greatest of stories. This morning we will look at the dialogue, and next Sunday morning we will look at the parable. So stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word, Luke chapter 10. We're going to read all the way through 25 to 37, but we're going to focus this morning on 25 to 29. Luke writes, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He, Jesus, said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly, do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy, and Jesus said to him, you go 
and do likewise. The Word of God, for the people of God, preach in the power of the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today. Again, Father, as it has already been said, we thank you, Father, that we stand here because men were willing to give their lives that we could have freedom. But, Father, we know that ultimately we stand here and we're able to enter the throne room of heaven with our prayers and our petitions because Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice and gave his life. And so it's upon his shed blood that we're even able to approach you. And so we thank you for that, Father. Father, we are completely dependent upon you to show us the truths of your word today. And so I pray, Father, you will just give us eyes and ears and hearts that, Father, can see and hear and be molded to the truth of your word, that, Father, we can take it and apply it to our lives. Father, we pray for those amongst us that are not here today that are traveling. You will just keep them safe. Father, just give us a good day of rest tomorrow to ultimately rest in you. Father, we just pray that you would forgive us in the many ways in which we failed you. For we ask this in Jesus' wonderful and precious name. Amen. So the first part of the dialogue is the lawyer's question. Look back to verse 21. First off, Luke places this incident directly after Jesus' prayer to the Father. In verse 21, look at what Luke writes. In that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to your little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Little children is Jesus' disciples. The wise and understanding is what the ESV says. The New Living Translation says, those who think themselves wise and clever, those people we're now about to meet. Well, does that not come as a surprise to any of us that that who would think themselves wise and clever is a lawyer? Hashtag insert your best lawyer joke. Second note that the first great question we find in Luke's recounting of this parable, and it's interesting that this is so well known because only Luke records this parable. The one that we're going to tackle this morning is this, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, we would say, what must I do to be saved? And so this question is the framework for the whole exchange we're going to look at this morning just as next week the question and who is my neighbor serves as the framework for the actual parable itself. So let's look here, verse 25. We're just going to break down each of these verses. So the lawyer's question, look first, note that there is a lawyer. And behold, a lawyer stood up. So I joked about putting your favorite lawyer joke, but this man is not a lawyer in the sense of the word with which we use it. He would not work for Gaddy, Keltner, Ben, Benu, and Montesi. In the New Testament, the scribes were also called lawyers, and so this man is a scribe, which was an expert in the law of God, the Mosaic law, and thus the term lawyer. In the New Testament, they were often associated with the Pharisees. So if you see a Pharisee, you're probably going to see a scribe and vice versa. They were educated in the Old Testament in what's called the oral traditions, which is the Talmud. They helped interpret and apply the Jewish traditions to everyday life for the people. And if you look in the Gospels, they often are seen as opposed to Jesus. So just give you a couple examples of conflict. Conflict over eating with tax collectors and sinners. Over Jesus' authority and exorcisms. Jesus' forgiving sins. Demand for a spectacular sign. 
conflict over hand washing, conflict over the crowd uh, at the triumphal entry, and then Jesus' accusations of their motives and hypocrisy. So flip ahead to Luke chapter 11. I want to read a section there because this gives us some insight to this guy. Look at verse 37 of chapter 11. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee, so if you see a Pharisee, who's probably going to be around? A scribe. Asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. You see the conflict already? Why? Just because Jesus didn't wash his hands before dinner. Well, where was that? Chapter and verse, please. Well, you can't find it because it's not in the Bible. It was tradition. Jesus says they took their traditions and voided the word of God by their traditions, as we'll look at later. The Lord said to him, You Pharisees cleanse outside of the cup of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Now look at this. The strongest language possible, he's going to pronounce woes upon them. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe, mint, and rue, and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. These guys were basically uh, known to only be evaluated based upon who they were. A deacon, pastor, a Pharisee, or their lineage, their ancestry. Well, I'm an American. I'm a Jew. They weren't used to being evaluated upon actually what they did. Jesus comes and says, you tithe every little bit of herb in your garden and you don't do anything to show love and justice towards people. So look, skip down to verse 52. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. That word catch there in the Greek is that that you would use of hunting an animal. They were literally hunting Jesus down to kill him. So we got a little bit of a background on this lawyer, right? You think he's going to have great motives? No. And so because of their knowledge of Scripture, who should have been the first people to recognize Jesus as Messiah? Who should have been the first people down on their hands and knees before the Lord begging for forgiveness? Who should it have been? The scribes, the Pharisees. But the problem was that they had on blinders. The blinders that they had on was tradition. As I've said it before, this is what they had on. Well, it's Baptist. And it might be biblical, but it ain't Baptist and we ain't going to do it. And they would say, well, Jesus, it might be biblical, but it's not Jewish and we're not going to do it. And so look back at Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 verse 30, Jesus says this, The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. They refused John's baptism. They refused to repent. They rejected Him. And then they rejected Jesus. They rejected the very purpose of God for their lives. How pitiful is that? As one pastor said, When light becomes darkness, how great is the darkness? 
Now keep in your mind, Alistair Begg says that this man was likely not only a scribe, but likely a temple priest. And if that is true, it's going to add greatly to the drama because guess who is one of the characters in the parable? Him. So keep that in your mind. Alright, so look there again at verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, so the fact that he stood means that people were what? Seated. So they're in an official teaching session of Jesus. And some see confrontation in that he stood. When you stand and other people are sitting and one person is standing to teach, then what are you doing? You're putting yourself on the same level as them. But truth be told, do you think he thought he was on the same level as Jesus? He thought he was up here. You remember the exchange with the scribes, the Pharisees, and Jesus in John chapter 8? And they tell him, oh, we, when he tells them that you are of your father, the devil. And they say, well, we were not born of sexual immorality. You see, so they thought they were up here. And in reality, don't you think he already knew the answer to his question? I mean, he's an expert on the law. Don't you think he knew the answer? And we've talked about, Jimmy and I, before that great teachers repeat themselves. Have you heard Cassie say something 20 times? Have you heard me say something 20 times? Because great teachers, and I'm not saying we're great, Cassie's probably greater than I am, but they repeat themselves. So do you think this is the first time that Jesus ever had this discussion and ever made this teaching? No. So this guy probably already knew the, question, the answer to his question, right? And so look at what he says. What shall I do? It's the same question asked of Jesus by the rich young ruler. It's essentially the same question answered in Jesus' exchange with Nicodemus, right? What must I do to be saved? You must be what? Born again. Well, how can a man be born again, right? And it led to that. It's the question of every life. Is there any greater question that anyone could ask other than what must I do to be saved? So it's a good question, but there's bad theology and bad motive as we're going to look at in just a second. The bad theology is this. What must I do? We're a doing people, aren't we? We want to do stuff. And when it... No more so is that true, I think, than with regards to our salvation. We talked about it this morning. You know why we don't pray a lot of times? Because we want to be independent of God. We don't want to be dependent upon anybody. And we sure don't want our whole salvation to be dependent upon what somebody else did. I want to be able to do something to know that I'm saved. Right? What is the prevailing teaching today? In every other religion other than Christianity, what is it that you have to do? Works. Mormonism teaches that. Islam, I've told you before, Islam is like a, a wicked version of uh, the biggest loser. On the last day, you're going to stand on the scales of judgment and the little number is going to bleep positive, negative, positive, negative, and it's going to say, boom, minus one. You missed it by one. You thought you had your calculations, but you didn't do one good work enough and so now it's off to hell with you. What kind of hope is that? And so, but think about this. Had this guy not read, how was Abraham saved? Genesis 15, 6. But he believed the Lord, and God counted it as what? 
Righteousness. And what did Habakkuk 2, 4 say? That the righteous shall live by what? Faith. Not by doing. Abraham didn't do anything. He said, believe the Lord. And so the righteous don't do anything. They just faith. Alright, so look at what he says. He stands up. So he's got pretty bad theology, but what's his motive? It's even worse. His motive is what? To put him to the test. That Greek word does not necessarily mean something negative, but the context here does. It means to test him with a view toward destruction. He's not really looking for an answer to a question, is he? He's just looking to hang a noose around Jesus' neck. I mean, we talked about it there in uh, Luke 11. They're literally hunting him down like an animal. If you remember all the way back in Mark 3 when he healed a man with the withered hand, it said, and they went out at that time to conspire how to destroy him. So from the very get-go of Jesus' ministry, he's got a massive target on his back and they are trying to hunt him down and kill him. He has zero interest in the truth. He really does not want to know how you can inherit eternal life. What he really wants to do is destroy Jesus. Right? Alright, so that's his question. Now look at Jesus' reply. Look at verse 26. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So stop for a second and consider this. Do you think Jesus knew this man's heart? Knew his thoughts? Knew his motives behind the question? You remember when they let the man down in Luke 5 through the ceiling? And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And remember it says, in him knowing their hearts that they were saying, who commits this blasphemy? Because God only forgives sins. So Jesus knew his motive, didn't he? I mean, you ever been asked a question by somebody and you knew immediately whether they really wanted to know the truth or they were just being hostile to you? I read, or uh, Alistair Begg was talking about Martin Luther was asked in a Q&A session and this guy was this hostile inquirer and he just kept getting more and more and more hostile. And finally he asked Luther, he said, what was God doing before he created the world? Luther said he was making hell for people like you who ask stupid questions like that. <laughs> That's pretty bold, isn't it? And it's pretty good. But you notice what Jesus doesn't do? He doesn't do that. He knows this guy's motive. And does he go, Ah, I got you. You're just trying to kill me. That's all you're trying to do. I'm not going to answer your crazy question. Hell's created for people like you would ask stupid questions like that. What did he say? Love your enemies. Do you see love incarnate any more than in Jesus' response? Jesus wants even those who wanted to kill him to come to know the Lord and to be saved. That's a good lesson for us, isn't it? Especially in the days of social media, it's a very good lesson for us. So look at what Jesus did say. He said to him, Jesus' famous method, what does he do? He answers a question with a question. If you ever ask Cassie something in class and she goes, well, what do you think? <laughs> That's not what I wanted. So look at what he says. He says, what is written in the law? In essence, he says, you're an expert on the Torah. You tell me. What does God's Word say? And think about this. When you argue with people, when you defend the faith, 
It's more difficult to argue against what God says, isn't it? And so take them to the Word. Jesus sends him to the Scriptures, the authority for all of us. Notice he doesn't say, what does the Talmud say? What does your rabbi say? What does your Jewish denomination say? Not what does the latest Lifeway book say? Not my pastor or Sunday school teacher said. He takes him to God's Word and says, this is what God says. But why the law specifically? Why didn't he take him to Genesis 15.6? Why didn't he take him to one of the other Gospels we've talked about, Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22? Why the law? Because the law shows us what we need. Psalm 19.7 says that the law is perfect, converting the soul. So think of the law in three Manners. Number one, the law is a tutor. The Hebrew word law is a verb that means to throw, to shoot an arrow, to point, guide, instruct. And so let me read us some verses from Romans. First off, the law shows us our guilt before God and stops us from justifying ourselves. Romans 3, 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And then it brings us to knowledge of sin in Romans 3.20 For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. How do you know that you have blasphemed the name of the Lord, taken it in vain? Because the law is written on your heart and it's written in his book, written in the book, just like we sang. And then it tells us exactly what sin is. Paul said in Romans 7, 7. He said, What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means, yet if I had not been, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. So the law is a tutor. But here's the thing. Think of Dr. Law and Dr. Grace. You ever been to the doctor? Maybe your family doctor or something. He said, look, I can't do anything about this. i got to refer you to somebody else. Yes, Marty's shaking his head because Bucket Cook said, your blood is jacked up and I can't do anything about it other than pray. you got to go see this other guy. Think of Dr. Law and Dr. Grace as that way. Dr. Law can do nothing about your problem. All it can do is diagnose you and then refer you. It can say, you are sick and you're going to die. Now I have to send you to another doctor. And that doctor is Dr. Grace, which is the gospel. And Dr. Grace does what? Cures and saves. Alright, so the law is a tutor and then the law is a mirror. It shows us our true colors. It shows us how jacked up we really look. Now let me ask you ladies, when you see dirt on your face in the mirror, do you wash your face with the mirror? Would you ever go, oh man, I got crazy stuff going on today. Let me wash my face with the mirror. No, that would be stupid. What do you wash it with? The water. You see the analogy? The law says, you look in the law and you go, wow, I looked really jacked up before the Lord. You don't then wash your face with the law. You go to the water, the living water, and you're washed by that. Does that make sense of Christ? 
Alright, and Zelda. And put soap on. That's right. The law's a tutor, it's a mirror, and then it's a yardstick. It shows us how far we have fallen short of God's perfect standard. Now here's what most of us do with regard to God's standard. We do like I do on the basketball court, and we lower it down the goal to seven feet, and then we dunk on it. And we think we're doing great. Man, I mean, I look like Kevin Durant out there, dunking everywhere and this and that. We lower the standard. You know what Jesus did? He took the basketball go up to 100 feet where nobody can dunk on it. Didn't he? What did he say in the Sermon on the Mount? You have heard it said, but I say to you this. You've heard it said, don't murder. But I say to you, anyone who's called his brother a fool, who's been so angry at someone that you just shouted or screamed at them, he said, that is murder. He ratcheted it up. But we want to lower it down and then think we're doing good. So what do we do? We compare ourselves to the rest of humanity and we say, well, I ain't as bad as that guy. At least I ain't a killer. I ain't killed nobody. You ever heard that said? And so 2 Corinthians 10 verse 12 speaks to that. It says this, when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. So the law is not a savior, but you know what you can't have without, uh, you can't have conversion without conviction. And the law is what God uses to convict us. Think about the rich young ruler. What did Jesus do? He took him to the law. And what does he say? Oh, I kept all those things. Yeah, I, I honored my mother and father every second of every day of my life. Every parent in here says, you are crazy too. So the law was never meant to save us and the lawyer should have known this. So look at what Jesus says. What's written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, chapter and verse, please. Don't give me your tradition. Because tradition said salvation was based on human merit and being a good little Jew. And think about it, as we've already said, who was his lineage father? Abraham. And how was his lineage father saved? Hundreds of years, five to six hundred years before the law was even given. And so he knew that he couldn't be saved by the law. And Jesus is about to make him look foolish because he's about to tell him to go practice what he... Preach. So look at verse 27. The lawyer's question, Jesus' reply, and then the lawyer's answer. He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, his answer shows great insight. I mean, we have to at least applaud him for that, right? Jesus even commends it in a minute, doesn't he? He says, You've answered correctly. I imagine as he's reciting it, you remember we've talked about this, they had phylacteries, which were these little boxes, and they had them on their wrists, and they had them on their forehead. Instead of those crazy curls like we saw in uh, Brussels in Belgium, you know, they had these little boxes on their forehead and their wrists, and inside the box was the Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6, which is this that he quotes, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And they would add to that Leviticus 19, 18. But because Leviticus 19.18 says of your own people, 
they limited love your neighbor as yourself to just good little Jews like them. And so we would say this guy got an A plus for book knowledge, but an F minus for heart knowledge. He was a good hearer, but a terrible doer. And so let me ask you, do you think that this guy had practiced that perfectly every day of his 40 plus years of life? You say, we haven't got to it yet. We'll get to it this week. But in the experience in God study, I had a problem with part of that this week. I mean, the guy almost to me, maybe I took it a little wrong, but it's almost like in the study it was, if you have not loved the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, you need to stop right now. You are lost. You're not saved. And I wanted to say, has anybody on this planet ever loved God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength other than Jesus Christ? No. And you know what convicts you of that? Not only is it written in the book, but as Romans 2.15 says, it's written on your heart. You know you have not loved the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It don't matter if you've got a box the size of Texas on your forehead with that uh, in there. You know that you might have head knowledge of it, but you have not really lived that out in your heart. I mean, and think about it. Can we even, do you think he could... I mean, I can't even love the people I like some days, little less the people that I don't like. Do you think he was any different? I don't care if it's 2,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, human nature's human nature. We have a hard time even loving the people we like sometimes. He had not loved his neighbor as himself. Have you loved your spouse 100% as yourself? Have you loved your parents? Have you loved the guy in, uh, that is at work beside you? Have you loved your enemy 100% as yourself? No. Here's what he should have done. He should have said, Jesus, this is what I read, but how on earth can a man ever do that? I failed. There's, is there no hope for me? Boom, then the gospel. Right? Instead... Like the rich young ruler, he's going, yeah, I've done that all my days of my life. I've loved the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, strength, and my neighbor as myself. There's nothing more dangerous than self-righteousness. Cassie and I have talked about this, especially when we went through Old Testament 1. How in the world does it say that David was a man after God's own heart when you look at his life in Scripture? It was jacked up, wasn't it? You know how? Because the man was repentant and broken. When he sinned, he was repentant. And God has always required brokenness and repentance. Vody Bauckham said, repentance is the highway, brokenness is the off-ramp. Think about the woman at the well. When Jesus says, you have answered rightly, you don't have a husband, in fact, you have had five and the one you're with right now is not your husband, did she go, well, well, and start making excuses? No, she was broken. What did the Syrophoenician woman come and say when Jesus said, no, I'm not going to heal your daughter? She said, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs off the Master's table. He said, whoa, I've not seen faith like this in all of Israel. You know why? Because he had not seen somebody that was truly that broken over their own sin. And so look at this guy. We'll get there in a minute, but he desiring to justify himself. That's his true heart. And so look at Jesus' command, verse 28. 
He said to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. So Jesus answers or commends his answer and maybe he started to kind of dance around. Yeah, I got that answer right. Maybe he sat there and kind of stroked his chin, looked over at his buddies and like gave a little wink. Mm -hmm. See, I am smarter than this guy. But his celebration was going to be short-lived, wasn't it? Because look at what Jesus says. Go practice what you preach. Do this and you will live. Now don't you think that reply annoyed the lawyer? Because what is he hoping for? He's hoping Jesus will answer wrongly and say, well, no, that's not right. It's this. And then you can say, gotcha. What does the law say, Jesus says? Love the Lord with all, 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 the lawyer says. And Jesus is about to teach him a little Hebrew. What does all mean in Hebrew? How do you say popcorn in Swahili? Popcorn. You know what all means in the Hebrew? It means all. 110%. The fact that you think you have done that is just as laughable as the rich young ruler who thinks he's honored his parents all the days of his life. It's ridiculous. So the caution or the promise of the law was this. You do these things and you live. The caution of the law was that it was wholehearted compliance. In other words, every second of every day of your life you had to be compliant with this. And so some people read this and they think, well, Jesus is affirming works-based salvation or works-based righteousness. Was He? No. What He's doing, He's just using the law the way God intended it. He's taking a mirror and he's putting it up to the eye and he's going, take a good, hard look into the mirror. Have you really done this? No. And he should have been broken over his own sin, shouldn't he? As we said, Jesus didn't let folks off the hook. He ratcheted up the law. I mean, think about what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, can anybody get out of that with their own self-righteousness intact? How can you come out of that discussion in which Jesus says, have you ever been angry at your brother, you've committed murder? Have you ever looked at a member of the opposite sex with lust, you've committed adultery? Who can get out of that alive? Jesus, that's impossible. That's the point. That's the point. That's why you need me. Impossible demands of the law are meant to drive us to seek divine mercy, not puff out our chest and walk around and act like we got it all together and we're so self-righteous. John Wesley said, Before I can preach love, mercy, and grace, I must preach sin, law, and judgment. Think about Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who calls on help? Drowning men. Only those who see themselves drowning in their sins will cry out, God have mercy on me. Spurgeon said they must be slain by the law before they can be made alive by the gospel. And so here's Jesus. He points them to the law and what's he try to do? Cover his sin. He tries to justify himself. Then Jesus is going to explain what the law requires in the parable that we look at next week. And you know what happens? His mouth is stopped. Because you know why? Deep down inside he knew he had never done this. So let's look at the lawyer's rebuttal, verse 29. 
But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? You know the only way to fulfill the law's demands? Limit them. You know the only way for me to dunk on a 12-foot goal? Bring it down to 7 foot. And so he says, Jesus, define your terms. Who's my neighbor? I mean, come on, Jesus. You can't love everybody. I mean, you mean tyrants and blasphemers, whores and tax collectors? You know what I think the simple truth is? It wasn't that he could not love everybody. It said he did not want to love everybody. Think about it in our own culture. Is it really a black-white problem? Is it that we have such a hard time loving members of the opposite race? It's that we don't want to. Is it that Republicans and Democrats can't get along? It's that we don't want to. Is it that different denominations, even in our own Southern Baptist Convention, as J.D. Greer put out a video this week calling us to unity days before the convention, that we can't get along? It's that we don't want to. And so, Jesus says, be careful of being a hypocrite here. And so, think, his first motive was what? Test Jesus. His second is what? Justify himself. What it should have been was this. Jesus, there's no way anybody can do that. I failed to love my neighbors. Is there any other way? Then he would have said what? Yes, be born again. But I imagine that just like the rich young ruler, Jesus looking at him, loved him, and his heart broke as he thought about John writing about this guy years later. He came to his own, and his own received him not. And so it brings me to this. Do you think Jesus missed an opportunity here? I mean, think about it. Where is, boom, the gospel? Do you see that? Do you see Jesus taking him through the Romans' road? Do you see him sharing the gospel? Why did he not? Did he miss an opportunity? If you look through the gospels, here's what you see with Jesus. When there's an unconverted sinner, he convicts them. And when it's a sinner that's already convicted, then he shares the gospel to convert them. Think about the arrogant lawyer here. Does Jesus give him the gospel? Why? Because he's not convicted. He even has any sin. What about the rich young ruler? Same thing. So what does he do? He uses the law to stir their conscience and their heart and their will. Think about Zacchaeus as a great example. He says, come down from there. Salvation is coming to your house today. And Zacchaeus says, if I have wronged anybody, I'm going to restore fourfold. Where did that come from? Exodus 22.1. He's already convicted of himself before the law and knows his need. And so what does Jesus do? Then gives him the gospel. And so we see it perfectly with the woman at the well if you want to study that in John 4. The key to genuine repentance is the law of God. Spurgeon says they will not accept grace till they tremble before a just and holy law. Remember that forgotten key I said in Luke 11:52, The forgotten key was the law. In his book, Hell's Best Kept Secret, Ray Comfort gives this illustration. If we were on an airplane and I came up and I said, Now Dan... I'm going to give you this parachute that weighs 25 pounds and you know, bumping into the other people you know, and you can't hardly sit in your seat and it's going to improve your flight. It's going to make your flight better. 
And when you start to then realize that it doesn't make your flight better and everybody starts mocking you and ridiculing you and this and that, what are you going to do with the parachute? Take it off. Now what if I then said, Dan, at any minute this plane could crash and the only thing that is going to save you from certain death is this parachute. You put it on, don't you? And then when Missy or myself start to make fun of you, you know what you're going to say? I don't care. Y'all going to die, fools. And I'm not. Do you see the difference between our witnessing and how Jesus witnessed? The first example is how we witness today. Put on Jesus. Put on being a Christian. It's going to make your life better. It might make your life worse. Because you might get ridiculed and you might get mocked and then you're not living in a pig pen like everybody else. You're trying to clean yourself up and you're trying to live for the Lord and it's going to be more difficult. And so you know what people then do when life isn't better because you put the parachute on them? They rip Jesus off and they want nothing more to do with Him. But if I then come and have you tremble for, before a perfect and holy law and I say, you have no hope other than Jesus because you stand condemned before the law of God and you are going to sheer death, you know what you do? You put it on and it don't matter what people say to you, you're not going to take it off. Right? And so here's this guy, the biggest point is he says this, what must I do? His greatest need is to be humbled. Alistair Begg put it this way. He said, Jesus said, here's a fat head. He needs to be humbled. I'm going to bust his eye balloon. And he does it by telling this parable that we're going to look at next week in which he is one of the chief actors. It's just brilliant. Oh, that we would be a soul winner like Jesus. So on the time we have left, I want us to look at several different things. You may not have time to write them down, but you can go back and listen to it if you want. But it's 12 things I thought of as far as what diamonds of truth can we mine from this parable this morning to apply to our own lives. And not each of these is going to apply to you. If one applies to you, write it down. But consider the following. Earlier I said that they had rejected the purpose of God for their lives. Number one is that people today still reject the purpose of God for their lives. I mean, there are so many people running around this planet that have no clue what their purpose even is. I mean, I have Christians on a regular basis in my office, my practice, who just say, well, I don't know what God's got me here for. We don't even know the purpose. At minimal, your purpose is to bring Him glory and do His will. Start with that. That's a big enough assignment, ain't it? Number two is people today still ask, what must... I do to inherit eternal life. Now I want you to think about this for a second. Are you a Christian atheist? Do you believe that you're saved by grace through faith but you're still living as if you're working your way to heaven? How many Christians are trapped in that? How many Christians are resting 110% in Jesus and His grace alone? I mean, praise God that I get to serve Him every day, but can I tell you, there ain't nothing that I can do to earn salvation. And praise God, I don't have to. He's already done it. 
I had a lady this week was talking about our Africa trip, and she was just like, oh man, y'all go over there and y'all do this and do that, and y'all share the word and all. That's just so nice. She said, uh, she said, you're going to make it to heaven, ain't you, Dr. Cook? And I said, not based on that woman. I said, I couldn't live 50,000 lives doing good for God and pay Him back for all that I've done bad. All that it matters is what Jesus did on the cross. That's right. But people still today, what must I do? Number three, people today still put Jesus to the test. How many of us are more interested in being biblical than Baptist? When we go before the Lord when, with whatever it is, is our motive to be faithful or to be right? And then number four, there's a need in our churches to rely on sola scriptura as the authority for our lives. What's your authority for faith and practice? Is it tradition? Is it rules? Is it religion? Is it rituals? Is it man's word? Your thoughts? Or is it God's word? As I've told our kids, you know what? You didn't come home from the hospital with an instruction manual. This was all we got, and this is what we're going to use at the Cook household. And if you don't like it, then so be it. But this is the authority for our life in the Cook household. And it should be for every one of us. Number five, people today still misunderstand the purpose of the law. Do you, heaven forbid, think it'll save you? Because it won't. No more so than washing with the mirror is going to get that funky dirt off your face. But then again, are we legalistic? <coughs> is grace nowhere even near our, on our radar? Are we libertarian? Heaven forbid, not that. That Jesus, we think Jesus is just a license to sin. Number six, there's still a great need in the world for us to practice what we preach. Amen? Does your life equal your lips? Would Jesus call me, would He call you a hypocrite? How's your witness and testimony? We talked about this in Africa. Let them see Jesus in me. Don't let them see Buffy Cook, because heaven forbid I will really mess it up. Let them see Jesus in me. That's what they need to see. Then number seven, people today are still good hearers and terrible doers. You know what past and that word in James, that's a reference to a verse in James. That word in James here is an auditor of a class. You know what an auditor of a class is there to do? Nothing. They're not doing any of the homework. They're not doing this or that. You know what pastor's greatest frustration probably in every church in America is? They've got too many auditors in the congregation. Too many hearers and not enough doers. So if Jesus were to grade your hearing, your head knowledge, would he give you an A, B, C, D, F? And if he were to grade your heart knowledge, your obedience, would he give you an A, B, C, D, F? What do you need to do to be a better hearer and a better doer? And number eight, people today still, need, still do not realize their biggest need, which is divine grace and mercy. You know my biggest need every day? Fall at Jesus' feet and cry out for mercy. How many times do we exemplify David in our life? When's the last time you repented? Repentance is not something we do one time to get saved or to come down the altar. It should be a daily thing. Amen? Amen. And number nine, people today still try to define terms to limit God's demands. Think about it. Am I interested in the minimal obedience I can get by with? 
are you? At the end of the day, number 10, people still attempt to justify themselves before God. Amen? Well, I ain't a bad person. I'm thinking, well, have you not read? Let me give you a five-question test. I'll blow your mind with that. I bet you you'll fail that. Number 11, people today still twist Scripture to justify unbiblical attitudes and actions. You know that the scribes would use Psalm 139, 21-22 to justify not loving their neighbor. Don't we justify certain actions that we do with certain Scriptures? And then number 12, the final thing, people today still uh, fail to fulfill the second greatest commandment, which is to love thy neighbor. In today's day and age, do you think that there is any greater need than us to love our neighbor? Whether they're black, white, Christian, Islam, Democrat, Republican. I mean, we can't even get along as Christians. So just based on those things alone, is it any wonder this thing, this parable so well remembered and so endeared itself to people? In closing, I'll just close with this. Jay Robertson McQuilkin once said, the goal of all Bible study is... Let me tell you. What do you think most Christians think the goal of all Bible study is? Just to advance the bookmark, as I've said. To get through Genesis all the way to Revelation. What's it I've said before? It doesn't matter how many times you've been through this. It matters how many times this has been through you. He said the goal of all Bible study is to apply the truth of Scripture to life. If that application is not made, all the work put into making sure the author's intended men will have gone for naught. In fact, to know and not to do doubles the offense of disobedience. That was this lawyer. He literally had Scripture on his forehead and on his wrist. He knew it. He could memorize, he had memorized Genesis to Deuteronomy. He could quote it. He had been through it, but it had not really been through him. It was missing the 18 inches from here to here. Now here's the point. Don't we have our own phylacteries? We got our Christian t-shirts. We got our Christian logos. We got our Christian bumper stickers. We got Bible verses on our business cards. And the big thing is, is it made the translation and the transition from here to here because it don't matter how much we know up here, it's how much we've actually taken and applied it to our lives. Amen? And so just pray that as we would examine ourselves that it would drive us to repent of any ungodly actions and attitudes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you so much for this time you've given us to come together and just to worship you, Father. Father, I thank you so much for your word. Father, we thank you for the law. Father, we thank you that it convicts us. We thank you, though, Father, you didn't just leave us helpless before the law, that, Father, you sent even before the law was given your son because he was the lamb foreordained from the very foundation of the world to be slain for our sins. And so we thank you, Father, that we don't have to meet the, the uh, impossible demands of the law that we have, Jesus, who did it for us. Thank you for all that you do for us. Father, we pray as we uh, leave here today that you would continue to give us a good uh, time with our families and to just rest. But ultimately, as we've talked about, Father, to rest in you. I pray as we come to this time of invitation that 
Father, any decision that needs to be made today, that you would just stir the heart of each person that is here to make the decision that you're calling them to make today. For it's in Jesus' wonderful and precious name we pray. Amen. I said that teachers frequently repeat themselves, and y'all know that I have said this before. What is the most frightening verse in Scripture? Hebrews 9.27 It's appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. And so were you here today ready to stand before a three-time holy God and give an account? Are you like this lawyer who's going to stand there before God dressed in your own self-righteousness? Think about as we take a long, hard look in the mirror of God's law. I'm going to give you a ten-question test. Instead of five. And it's the Ten Commandments. No other gods before me. If you really loved God with all, no idols. Remember what I said. Little G-O-D greater than big O-G is idolatry. Is there anything that's ever been in your life that was greater than God? Then you're an idolater. You ever taken the name of the Lord in vain? That's blasphemy. You're a blasphemer. Have you kept the Sabbath holy and perfect? One day out of every seven, worship the Lord truly like He deserved to be worshipped. Have you honored your father and your mother? Let's call them and find out. Don't murder. You ever been angry? Don't commit adultery. Ever looked at someone of opposite sex lustfully? Don't steal. Even if you took a paper clip. The Bible says that you know to do good and you don't. That is what? Sin. So if you knew you should have gave somebody money and you didn't, that's the same as stealing, isn't it? Don't bear false witness. Don't covet. The final nail in the coffin is this. James 2.10 says this, that if you had broken the law in one, you broke it in and all. There ain't a person that can hear my voice. And if this podcast goes out to a million people, there wouldn't be a million people that could hear my voice and stand before God other than this, guilty. So when you stand before the Lord on that day, are you going to stand in your own self-righteousness like this lawyer? Or are you going to stand, as the hymn says, dressed in His righteousness alone? So if you've never believed on the Lord Jesus, never received Him as Lord of your life, never repented of your sins, Come receive him this morning. If you have, we ought to all be down on our hands and knees saying, Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you kept it perfectly so that I didn't have to. Amen. So stand as we sing this morning. Page 330. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. I saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and 
Praise and when 